This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, the host for this episode. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Enrique Martino about his new book, Touts, Recruiting Indentured Labor in the Gulf of Guinea, which was published by De Gruyter Press in 2022. Dr. Martino is currently a faculty member at the Complutense University of Madrid and was previously a fellow of the Freiburg Institute for Advanced Studies. Enrique, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sarah. Happy to be here. And thanks for the invitation. So I always like to start by asking uh, my guests to introduce themselves and how they came to their project. Uh, So could you sort of start um, by sort of explaining how you got so interested in studying both history and anthropology, as well as specifically how you landed on the topic of labor history um, in the island of Fernando Po? Sure. So I I did my master's in 2008 in anthropology and development at the LSE, and then I just moved to Berlin but not really with a plan. I was a few years just lounging, odd jobs, reading reading around political stuff. But I did um, I did inscribe myself in a in the PhD program, which in Germany you just find a supervisor who gives you a, a, a permit, basically, and then you have to figure out your own research topic, uh, propose it yourself, figure out your own funding. And then initially I, had a, I, had a, I wanted to research the Haitian Revolution, but that was a very tricky subject, also impossible to research from, you know, from Berlin without funding or, or prospects. So I, 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 the supervisor I found was Andreas Eckert at the Humboldt, a famous African history labor historian. So I kind of found something to do nearby that could kind of, you know, match. So um, I focused on Spanish Guinea, Equatorial Guinea. Um, and then there I had, I had um, researched a, a bit about it. Even my one of my main interests was uh, even about the West African migration to Spain in the contemporary period. And w- one of the things I found out is that a lot of the migration in the colonial period of Nigerians to Spanish Guinea was done on you know rickety fishing boats crossing the Bight of Biafra. Quite similar kind of imagery, even though it was a very different situation. So I kind of I had a sense that I wanted to historicize the, this this kind of current current phenomenon. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so before we kind of you know dive into the book, I think there are a few bits of background um, that will be helpful to provide. 
you know, even within the scholarship on West Africa, Fernando Poe is a fairly marginal topic uh, and a place that, you know, probably many listeners to this podcast will know little to nothing about. Uh, so could you provide us with a kind of brief historical sketch of the island in general, uh, and then specifically an overview of the history of labor recruitment in relation to the island? Mm -hmm. Sure. So Bioko is um, a large volcanic island off 100 kilometers off Nigeria, and it's it has an indigenous population, the Bubi. The Spanish acquired it from the Portuguese in this kind of land swap treaty in the 18th century, but they didn't settle it. Um, instead, the British came, rented it, and used it as a base for their anti-slavery squadron. Um, and they, you know, used, hired the slaves that they freed. They hired as clerks, etc., as servants. And a lot of them stayed on the island. They, they, were, they formed the nucleus of the Creoles, of the Fernandinos. Um, they, in turn, independently set up the cacao plantations in the 1870s, initially in palm oil trade. Um, so they went looking for their own laborers in Freetown, but also wherever there was kind of an emerging labor market, the crew areas in Liberia, in Cabinda, and the long, long, the Longo coast. And so this phenomenon initially was kind of you know self self started. Uh, it was added to by a new wave of Spanish and Cuban planters in the 1890s after the kind of Cuban War of Independence. The Spanish used the island as a penal colony for Cuban independence people who were, you know, well-to-do bourgeois planters. So they land on the island. It's not a prison. They just can live there or die there. Uh, and they set up a lot of the plantations. So they, um, that kind of then increases, obviously, the, I mean, the, the scope of plantation production, but also this new demand for intermediation in labor recruitment, because, you know, where are you going to get laborers? There's no enough, there's not enough indigenous people. You need to get, uh, you need to find recruiters to, to find you the laborers, basically. And then, and then over the course of the 20th century, there's different phases and waves of recruiters uh, sourcing labor in Liberia, in Nigeria, in Central Africa. Um, and that's what the book is about. Um, and then despite that, you know, we're talking about um, quite a small island, I know your research took you to a number of different archives. So could you share um, a bit about your sources, uh, your methods, um, and reflect on kind of any challenges you faced in writing this history of touts or labor recruiters in coastal West Africa. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I first went to the archive, I realized it should be straightforward because there's a couple of good, solid British colonial, some Spanish colonial reports about, you know, migration, the agents, the laws, etc. And a lot of even the more recent academic work kind of is a very similar framework. Um, so, I didn't want to repeat it. I didn't want to have this kind of colonial uh, approach. So the benefit of also studying a small place is that you get to read everything. I was kind of in the archive looking at different topics, different files, different departments, law, police records, et cetera. And there you also find things related to recruitment. It's not just, you know, the annual report uh, with, uh, with the overview. And then there's where you kind of start reaching into these kind of hidden worlds of how the recruitment and the migration and kind of daily life actually actually looked like. Um, and this kind of, it also from multiple perspectives, from the Spanish, from the British, um, 
perspective because most of the most of the island the population was british west african nigerian laborers traders etc so there was kind of a lot of a lot of public a lot of british sources too missionaries uh traders a lot of germans some french etc so this kind of multiple locations in the archive were kind of key for me to kind of um you know find a new perspective on this and also new conceptual perspective uh, now just um one more background question. Um, I know you'll be talking uh, a lot about touts and labor recruiters in our interview. Uh, and so it will be worth sketching out, I think, um, sort of how, who is doing this recruitment and how kind of where they're recruiting. All of this is not stable. Uh, so could you briefly sketch out this history for, for the listeners? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's interesting. So who and, and where, that's why, I, that's why I took the whole of the Gulf of Guinea, um, because recruiters themselves they operate in waves. You know, uh, different periods, different political conditions, uh, different crises, economic crises in different places, etc. And the most interesting thing that I found is that the recruiters they don't they're not the same recruiters in different places. Uh, they adopt the same techniques, uh, but they can be, for example, the late 19th century, there were former former slaves, the, the Aguda from, from Dahomey were, were quite prominent recruiters, but also slave traders, former slave traders were also prominent recruiters, the Efik from Calabar. Um, there was a few settler, Spanish settler recruiters who were kind of recently arrived in the colonies in the 1920s, you know, easy money, quick money to try to set up a plantation. Uh, they engage in recruiting more in Central Africa and in Gabon and in Cameroon. Um, there was a lot of the Nigerian recruiters were actually women uh, traders, small traders who turned into kind of you know, human smugglers. Um, so there's this kind of uh, you know a, a totally uh, a kind of melange profile of of who are these actually of who the recruiters are. And but I think the, the my key finding is that the recruiters drift. It's not. Because the areas where the labor comes from isn't this kind of, it's not an equilibrium. The labors don't come from the same place. Once laborers have gone to Fernando Po, they leave and they don't come back. It's a one contract thing. You know, you earn money, you do something else. You don't want to go back there. It's kind of terrible plantation uh, production. So um, every every two or four years, basically, you have to have recruiters going into other corners. So there's this kind of rolling frontier nature to recruitment which that's why it takes kind of place across the entire Gulf of Guinea over this kind of uh, ha- over half a century. All right, let's get into the book. Um, so your first chapter uh, largely looks at the history of the sort of the contract, so the labor contracts uh, on the island. One theme is that the Spanish colonial labor office tried often through the labor code to control labor contracts to their own advantage, not surprisingly. Um, And that embedded in all of this is a contradiction, that labor is framed as contractual, but obligatory. Um, So what were some of the key labor laws and historical developments uh, that gave way to this situation? Mm -hmm. So the key institution is here, the labor office, which was founded around 1900. And they basically decree proletarianization. That is, everyone in this colony has to work for a living, even if they don't need to. Uh, the labor code is a kind of constitution of this work dictatorship, um, where the you know the if you don't have laborers on the island, 
what what you need to do is get other people to bring them there and once they're there then they have to work so um but then so th that's why I, I analyzing the contract i realized it's not just you know a simple device in this kind of legal term to stabilize tr uh, a transaction or to remove uncertainty to make things transparent etc the contract itself is kind of the base of the economy of, of fernando po because it creates these recruiters via the generation of credit. There's also a financial system here because these long contrasts that the labor code imposed um, makes it possible to you know, release large sums of money in recruiters' commissions, in advances that then will be paid back in, through the long contract and, and the laborers' work, of course. And this duration also has kind of 19th century legacies because it's basically the indentured contract that the Cubans used for the Chinese coolies. Um, they just use that as their as the kind of labor code, reducing the number of years because there it was eight years. Uh, mm. They reduced it to four and then two because West African migrants wouldn't kind of go uh, for, for longer than two years at a time. The crew had kind of set up this kind of upper limit of how long kind of labor migration would last. Now, despite all of the efforts uh, by the Spanish, along with various labor recruiters, labor scarcity is a kind of common enduring theme in the history of Fernando Poe. Uh, so what are some of the causes of this kind of continued scarcity? So Fernando Poe is quite unique in the region because it is kind of a, a big planting, big plantation, settler-focused kind of economy. Um, there's, there's a bit of it in in, in the Mount Cameroon and Ivory Coast, but it's uh, it, it it was a government sponsored th sponsored thing because the government, starting in the with the Cubans, they just give new Spanish settlers uh, free land. They don't give them the labor. Initially, they tried to do they promised them the labor too, but then it's like we'll give you the free land. Um, they also helped the expropriation of land from the small farmers. A lot of them were Fernandinos. They were small cacao farmers. They were expropriated to make to make space for the kind of big Spanish planters. So you have these large plantations, sometimes 100, 200 kind of labors, uh, labor needs kind of growing. Um, and, you know, they always exceed the, the availability of labor because there was um, there was this kind of, you know, cacao, cacao frontier and speculation and quite, uh, you know, profitable cacao production. So uh, there's this kind of different ways also of Spanish planters in the early 20th century in the, in the Franco's period after the Civil War. So there's always, you know, new labor demands. And in the 30s, this particularly kicks off where, you know, there's 5,000 different kind of planters or entities that hire laborers. And then... The labor demand is, you know, 20, 25, 30,000 a year or every two years, uh, whereas at the beginning of the century, it had been a thousand. And then and in this period, when it really when the plantations really kick off is kind of where I mostly focus the book on, which is when also the, the connections to, the, to southern Nigeria really, really start. OK, um, so much of your book focuses on two techniques or methods of labor recruitment, Panya and the dash. Um, so we'll start, as you do, with Panya. So what is it? Uh, why does it get compared to slavery? And what is the argument that you wish to make about the relationship or difference between the two? Mm -hmm. So yeah, so the two recruiting techniques are Panya and dash. They're pigeon words for Panya is to take, 
and dashes to give. But um, so panya is the, the taking. Uh, what does this mean? You know, it, in, in panya is a pigeon term for being taken, ta also being ripped off, taken for a ride, captured, but captured kind of peacefully, captured by a language, by deception, by trick. Um, for example, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a bad trade, you say, you know, it's a panya trade, you know, it's, you know, it got ripped off or the, the quality isn't good. It's kind of, you know, bad quality. Um, so, you know, rec the recruiting, I call it that the, that it took place like a panya trade because recruiting was actually based on, on various forms of deception, you know, not only the deception of Basa, the destination, a lot of laborers were promised work in rubber plantations in southern Nigeria, in Lagos, and in Cameroon, but in the end were taken by, by canoe to Fernando Po, and once on the island they were forcibly hired. Um, so that's why in this narrative of the laborers that exist, there is this experience of capture and, and captivity and, and, and kind of forced labor. But the key difference is that the recruiting technique on land in Nigeria, there's no violence, there's no chains, there's no kind of capture. It's only once once you arrive on the island that that happens. But the, but nevertheless, the recruiters are kind of you know seen as the ensnarers, the kind of you know the, the the kind of the new slave traders, so to say. But it's actually you know methods are basically exactly the opposite. It's the it's the it's the it's the new imperial labor codes that actually kind of generate the possibility for this panya recruitment trade. Um, now, sort of one of the uh, groups that you know occasionally sort of makes this comparison to slavery um, is the British government, and you kind of note how you know at times they often looked unfavorably on recruitment of Nigerians to work in Fernando Po. Um, going so far as to consider the tout as a quote modern successor of the slaver. Um, so, how did what was sort of the British response? Maybe how did that kind of change over time, um, and, and what impact did they have on labor recruitment within Nigeria? Because mm. the, the British they refer to the to the touts even in South Africa as these kind of um, you know neo slave traders but you know what are their techniques like they they kind of malign them through with this kind of terminology in order to crack down on them they're doing illegal yeah. work they're crossing borders bringing out laborers that aren't allowed to emigrate uh, unless they have a permit or unless they have a contract um so this is a kind of a clandestine labor smuggling and the people doing it even though they're not slave traders they're kind of referred to as, as new, new slave traders but the british in the end they don't really care about you know the the actual work, the destination, the, uh, the the abusive conditions on the plantations, they simply care about the, the procedure in the recruitment. You know, you need an affidavit, you need a contractual uh, voluntariness, etc. So they try to bring this into, into, into Nigeria so that they can regulate it. Um, but, you know, even this discourse, it doesn't actually, it attacks the intermediary, the, 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 the smuggler who they're trying to crack down, but it leaves the plantation infrastructure intact. You know, it's the, still the same plantations, still the same kind of abusive labor conditions, uh, but they kind of, you know, they, um, they just want it to be done procedurally in a correct way. But they don't actually kind of because for, for most people, even the labor testimonies, the experience of slavery came from the plantation, not from the recruiters. So there, there's this interesting difference. All right, and now kind of what is a dash? What's the history of this term? Um, and how does it relate to labor recruitment in Spanish Guinea? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so dash is, you know, the giving from the Portuguese Dao. 
Don Le Don, and it has a it has a it's an important component in all sorts of economic history in in, in West Africa. Uh, it has sometimes it's referred to as as a, as a tip, a bribe, an advance. Um, it's this kind of Geyer calls it an ancillary to an exchange. That is, in order to complete an exchange, you need to give a dash beforehand. Um, and in relation to the to to the contract, um, the dash kind of emerges as this type of wage advance. You know, something that you need to give before if you want them to actually kind of uh, sign a sign a contract in the first place or come with you to sign a contract. Um, so it becomes the key mechanism to hook laborers. Even the recruiters in, Sp- in Spanish are called ganchos, which means to hook. Um, because they channel this credit released by the contract, but then the dash it's 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 it has many layers because the dash also kind of it's an index of of quality because uh, or dimension. So the longer the contract, the bigger the dash. Um, or for example, the the more experienced you are as a worker, the higher the dash is for you as well because you know you have. Uh, labor skills, you know how to harvest cacao, etc. So it, it's this kind of, it's not just a single thing, it also has its own kind of uh, price range. Uh, so I tried to kind of really track this because this is, becomes key to understand the entire kind of re- labor and recruitment structure. Um, and I know in, in the book you say, quote, that sort of, you know, the dash is often inaccurately described as a wage advance. So why is a wage advance not a kind of accurate way of, of thinking about the dash? Mm. Because the dash quickly escalated and it exceeded the formal wages. So if the let's say the wages were thirty pesetas a month for two years, around four hundred, uh, sorry, seven hundred, the dash was three thousand. So you gave someone a dash, and they, it was unclear how long the contract was. That's why part of this opacity of panya is you know you don't know, you don't know how long you're going to stay there working, etc. They don't tell you that it's this four year contract. Um, uh, misinformation deception. So the dash, it becomes this kind of, um, you know, well above the wage. It's this kind of component of excess, of excess credit, of indebtedness. Um, and also this kind of index because people happily take on higher dashes even because they're experienced laborers or even work, bad plantations who had a bad reputation, you know, brutal overseers, et cetera. They also had to offer higher dash to attract new laborers, but, you know, people took it because it was, it was kind of higher and then ended up indented there. So it has this kind of, um, it's beyond the, it's beyond simply just a wage. It has its own kind of dynamic of, mm. of debt, but also other dynamics. So one of your sources is the Nigerian press. How did Nigerian journalists cover topics related to Fernando Poe? And how did Nigerian political developments shape or inform this coverage? Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's very interesting because um, it's actually Nandia Zikwe who kind of really kickstarts the Nigerian press attention on, on, on Fernando Po. He had written about the Liberian labor for scandal with Fernando Po in the 30s. And when he founded kind of you know his various newspapers in the, in the mid-30s, 
Fernando Po was constantly in the, in the in the kind of scandalous limelight of the Nigerian press, led by you know elite Nigerians. And for them, Fernando Po, Spanish Guinea represented this kind of you know they, this kind of new slavery, etc. Um, the, the 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 recruiters themselves are also this type of new slave traders. Um, there's, but it's this kind of, it's, it's different than the kind of European missionary kind of abolitionism of this new slavery that was kind of has, has a separate track. Because in Nigeria, in the press, it's more about this kind of, you know, indignity, this also this geopolitical indignity, and it becomes a kind of channel also for anti-colonialism. In the 50s, 60s, once Nigeria is independent, Spanish Guinea is still a colony, it becomes, you know, a big thing. You know, Nigerians are being exploited there, kind of abused there abroad, etc. And even our own ministers, uh, labor ministers from Lagos are kind of selling our own citizens abroad, etc. So it becomes a kind of vector for, for political attack, um, especially by the 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 National Council for Nigeria and Cameroon Zix, Zix party. Um, so it has kind of this its own kind of media and Nigerian political dimension here. The the, the very interesting press coverage is literally hundreds of articles around this. Uh, now, it might sound so far, perhaps to some people listening, that the recruited workers had little agency over their labor conditions and wages. Um, and while certainly many of those recruited you know, did find themselves stuck in unfavorable contracts, uh, you also find in the archives many examples of workers resisting, sometimes collectively and sometimes individually. Um, so what were some of the techniques uh, that workers used to their own advantage? Mm-hmm. So here there was a bit of a culture shock because a lot of the, even in Nigeria there was a relatively free you know syndicalist culture, labor associations, social interest groups, etc. In once the Nigerians really start arriving when the Francoists take over in 1936, it's you know a totally different political culture. No no right to gathering, no right to to even to petition. You know the response is jail. Um, so there's a lot of immediate confrontation with overseers, with police, etc. Um, but the the key vector of resistance, which is kind of um, not exactly this kind of oppositional resistance, is the dash. And um, and I kind of analyze this increase of the dash as in situations where there is no syndicalism, where there is no labor unions, where you can ask for increased wages, you can, you know, demand improving conditions. The dash itself actually fulfills or ends up in, in, the, in a similar function, but through this decentralized way, because laborers, uh, first, if they, if they don't like, if they want to protest, uh, 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 you know, bad conditions, they, f- they flee a plantation. It's not that that's not that difficult. Helped by brokers and touts and recruiters who give them new advances to work in a better plantation, um, so the dash becomes like a way out. Um, it also kind of uh, it also then co- it consolidates the better plantations and the better working conditions. So working conditions progressively improve over time, um, not because the government decreed it, not because the workers organized, but because actually the dash kind of incentivized this, and also it led to increased wages because. The Nigerians were already there. Once they rehire, they already know they get they know who pays the better dash. They can actually get most of the dash rather than just the the recruiter or tout taking most of it as their commission and just dropping off the labor there. Um, so then, yeah. So the dash becomes actually this kind of key vector. What I call kind of resistance in the sense that it it proposes 
um, it challenges the 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 status quo of the of the of the plantation infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, one of your findings is that there's this twenty fold increase in the value of the dash in just little over ten years, which is obviously right quite impressive. Um, that this is something that happens in collaboration with sort of workers and the touts. Um, now, in your, your final chapter, um, you make a case for rehabilitating the concept of the Lupin broker um, in terms of studying financial middlemen like the touts and recruiters um, who are sort of the focus of your book. Uh, as you put it towards the end of this chapter, you argue that if Lupin proletarization is not given a more expansive and dynamic role in imperial capitalism, it will remain reduced to a lens which categorically renders them as ghostly figures outside the domain of political economy and economic analysis. Um, So perhaps start out by briefly kind of explaining for listeners why the concept of the Lupin broker or Lupin proletariat um, is a bit vexed um, and then explain kind of what's at stake here in your view for historians of colonial labor and economy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that my kind of penultimate chapter is this quite elaborate, more conceptual piece to try to create the concept of the Lumpen broker in the sense that the brokers themselves are kind of Lumpen, you know, criminal smugglers but also they're the brokers of the lumpen. Uh, um, you know, they they represent in the end their their their, their interest, or they can, um, in this dynamic of the dash that I talked about. And then, so I do this kind of, you know, this it, it could it could be a bit this an arcane kind of philology of the term lumpen, and it's related to this kind of redundant Marxist jargon because it's kind of a neologism from from Marx and Engels. Um, but I think I, I do propose it as a kind of as an analytic to understand the historical emergence of labor markets in this case, but also generally because of the, the, the techniques of, of of the of the touts, which are you know semi-criminal, uh, lumpen techniques, erratic, shifting, uh, um, kind of scammy, etc., which squarely belong to the lumpen, and obviously the lumpen and the proletariat is not a term commonly used in African history. Um, primarily because it's seen as kind of you know too too kind of you know French Marxist class obsessed etc. Or even just because of political contamination, like the Marxist Leninist regimes in the seventies, you know, also labeled entire categories of vagrants and miscreants as as lumpen to press them into forced labor etc. Um, but I realized only after because I, I have this article in Africa on the dash in 2016 and then a friend of mine taught me oh you it, it sounds like a picaresque labor movement like you know picaresca this kind of spanish uh, literary genre about you know these kind of lumpen milieus you know vagrants beggars speculators smugglers uh, etc and then i realized you know i should this is a kind of a serious uh, uh it has serious kind of conceptual potential because it actually explains the labor market. Other equivalents usually, you know, in other historiographies, they talk about, you know, precarious, informal, criminal, disorganized, super exploited, etc. Um, but actually, the, the key thing that I wanted to pr- bring in with this lumpen is that 
the Lumpen also has a dialectical top. Also the speculators, also the smuggler kings, etc., are part of this kind of Lumpen class that kind of can act politically as kind of a central conduit and rail through which the entire economy and politics actually unfolds. That's why, you know, give them a prominent role because otherwise it's just seen as this kind of marginal, peripheral, uh, underclass, outcast element, etc. Um, and I also have this kind of little theory of, you know, that colonial society itself, it, it's kind of lumpenized from the beginning because you can't, in Marx, lumpen is separate from production um, because lumpen is also just trade, circulation, finance, uh, whereas pro- production is, you know, factory uh, labor, etc. But you know, the entire constellation of, you know, of labor of labor only rose about through this kind of through the lumpen elements, and even kind of uh, became dynamic through them. So, in that sense, I t- really tried to also provide a kind of post-Marxist alternative to in, in in labor history, which otherwise is a bit stuck in these kind of weird oppositions, liberal oppositions, free, unfree labor, uh, halfway categories, uh, recruiters just half half free, half unfree depends. It's like no, they have their own their own dynamic, which is very much a lumpen dynamic, and that kind of is of central historical importance, which is what really Marx tried to do when he coined the term, give the lumpen a political role uh in in history in this case in in france but in my case in in the colonies now that we've kind of gone through kind of the bulk of the book um what would you say are your book's key interventions or arguments Mm -hmm. well i like the lumpen chapter but i think also in the introduction i kind of i propose basically a, a theory of labor market uh, creation, this kind of you know emergence in, in unstable circumstances. What I said is shifting, or even in in uh, when they collapse. Also, it's usually because of um, uh, of kind of uh, these kind of the presence of these contractors uh, and intermediaries, um, sometimes illegal. Because otherwise, um, usually in labor migration theory, you have the figure of the intermediary, etc., the contractor. But um, I think what's original in my book is that, you know, I, I don't start, take as a starting point the fact that they're intermediary because that already implies that they have a kind of a conceptual function to intermediate. They already have a goal in mind to overcome a shortage, to smoothen out uh, disequilibria, to bridge labor demands, to spread information about jobs, etc. But uh, but no, it's the they're not in, in that sense intermediaries. They create the, they introduce their own elements, uh, the touts. They, they introduce their own touting elements. Um, so here, this is how you know I find that these labor markets are actually being generated in this kind of lumpenized way through traps, traps in the sense of panya, uh, visual traps, deceptions, and credit traps. Um, so. And this in, this interesting element of bringing in this kind of you know the, the 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 financial element of money creation through the contract is it's it's also this kind of boom the labor market is born in booms um, like a financial boom or bubble that's why it's also associated with swindle and so I kind of link in the literature around kind of financial crisis financial speculation and labor markets so I think that's kind of I outlined the introduction probably the most kind of original contribution. I know another outcome of your research was a digital archive, opensourceguinea.org. Um, so do you mind maybe describing that a bit, kind of what motivated you to set it up um, and any feedback you've received or kind of how doing this influenced your own research? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 
in I started early 2012 or something because I as I said I didn't come from history I kind of autodidact I started reading you know different historical classics Baudel Hobbes one on my own I didn't know what an archive was and I was like fuck I should go to an archive and then um and then while I was at the archive I was also reading a lot of Latour Bruno Latour it was kind of my Latour phase 2011 and there he speaks about, you know, the mode of science as re- referentiality, the footnotes, what you cite that, that creates authority, continuity, community, etc. And then realizing when I read the footnotes, you know, they cite archives. It's like, how, how the hell am I going to check what that footnote says? I have to travel to there, spend 10,000 euros, you know. So I was like, you know, we need a new system, you know, just click on the footnote. It brings you to the source. So then uh, theoretically, it was kind of inspired there, but also practically because a lot of people were asking me for things once phd students go to the archive other professors other people oh can you check this for me so i was kept sharing pdfs of of sources and as i was reading widely i wasn't reading in the archive just the labor material the economics the law etc i photocopied everything sent it around and i was like okay let's post it on, on the website and um yeah it was kind of in the spirit of sharing i have this kind of history in africa article where i kind of outline it but i think the main impulse came also in this in the German milieu in Berlin, the PhD students, they have this terrible petty bourgeois kind of possessiveness of their material that they won't share. I found this, it's mine. I was just so put off by that, that I just had to do the opposite. Um, well, Enrique, we, we've taken up, I think, enough of your time. Um, but before we end, I'd like to ask one more question, um, and that's sort of what you're working on currently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish I knew the answer because it's <laughs> I've been doing different things. So as I have a tout theory of the of the labor market, I think I'm developing a, a tout theory of the money market. So I'm looking at kind of trade in the 19th century and before as kind of a, a of a monetary trade because it passes through kind of different units of account that were known as kind of the coast monies, you know, the bundles, the price, the bar, the copper, etc. Before these get homogenized into this kind of you know francs and, and dollars, etc. And then here, the key mechanism that enabled a kind of profitable trade for the European traders was a kind of touting. They they substituted the type of items that would still be valued at a certain value, let's say five coppers, but they would substitute or persuade someone to accept this cloth, this cheaper cloth, et cetera, for, but for the same five. So that's where the, actually the profit margin of the entire European kind of decentralized pre-colonial trade came from. And this idea, I mean, I got it from Polanyi. He has this article from 1964 on the ounce trade and the sorting trade. But I've been looking at the at the Gulf of Guinea again, in the 19th century, to kind of develop this kind of touting theory of the of the money market. Um, and but I have various other projects. I'm also doing this translation of these kind of different type of. Uh, of this German anthropologist from the late 19th century on primitive monies to better understand the kind of multiple multiple currency situations in this period. And recently I've also been doing this funny uh, profile of, of the current future leader of Equatorial Guinea. His name is Teodorin Ngema Obiang, a son of, uh, of, of the dictator, a bit of an interesting figure. Um, so... Um, I'm also kind of writing, you know, some actual some political history there, and it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a very, very entertaining. I've been doing it the past few months, so I haven't returned to my Money Grundrisse book because it's a bit like I don't know if you're watching Succession, 
the, the HBO show. It's a, it's a mix of Succession and The Last King of Scotland, the, the political reality of Equatorial Guinea, you know, the different brothers of the dictator trying to become king, etc. And, um, and, and yeah, so I'm looking forward to that coming out because I think it's an exciting kind of uh, t- topic and it'll be relevant soon because he's going to be this kind of new young dictators, you know, a bit like Kim Jong-un or, you know, this Gaddafi son or, you know, one of these dictator sons, very flamboyant guy. But he's actually quite interesting because he's kind of creating this kind of new populism, uh, this kind of... Um, is basically also this kind of Trumpian element. Blames the immigrants for everything. Tries to ha- he's the head of this anti-corruption uh, probe, drain the swamp type thing. It's a really interesting development. So that's what I've been kind of doing more recently. Well, that all sounds really interesting. I, I look forward to to reading it when it comes out. Um, and thanks again for doing this podcast. Thanks very much, Sarah. It was it was great to to see you again. And um, and yes, we'll be in touch. Cheers.